Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel 26, 17 through 21. It's the story about a young man named David who kept a promise and how that touched the heart of a king. Will you join me in reading God's word? Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he added, Why does my lord pursue his servant? For what have I done? What guilt is on my hands? Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is mortals, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out today from my share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now therefore, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord, For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have done wrong. Come back, my son David, for I will never harm you again. Because my life was precious in your sight today, I have been a fool and I have made a great mistake. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This week we were remembering the Oklahoma City bombing, an event that I'm sure many of you like me will never forget. And every time this week comes up, I have to pause and and sort of think about all of that again. I carry a couple of mementos from that day, uh, keep them in my office. The first is a picture of the Alfred P. Murrow Federal Building. It, uh, it's an iconic photo. It was on the front page of the New York Times. My wife's Photoshop produced uh, this picture and the iconic photo of uh, the fireman carrying little Bailey out of the wreckage. Uh, on this picture, there's a, a, a little inscription to my wife. It says, To Prudy, thanks for saving us. And it's from the New York Times staff. They said that because she helped, uh, helped them through telling of that story, but also because she cared for them spiritually and many of the other people who were here to tell that story. The second thing I have in my office is a a big chunk of granite. It was given to me by the Oklahoma City Police Department because I served as a chaplain in the Children's Triage Center, which was set up in the post office at the foot of the Murrah Federal Building during the bombing. We were there uh, manning that post about 45, 50 minutes after the bombing itself took place. And uh, then afterwards, I served with notification teams, and uh, I served on a special team where we went to notify children and grandchildren when the body of their parent or grandparent had been recovered. For weeks, I carried around in the back of my car uh, a box of stuffed animals, and uh, and whenever we would, would go make one of those notifications, we would take a little stuffed animal in to give the child. It didn't help much. I learned in that process the power of words. Timothy McVeigh was was stoked up in hatred and anger by words that that he spoke and words that he shared with other people. Words that, that turned the world upside down for us in Oklahoma City and the surrounding area in those days. Words that caused great pain and suffering and even death. 
mentioned words so powerful they could get a guy to, to fill a yellow truck full of explosives, drive it in front of a building, set that bomb off right in front of a daycare center. Words have incredible power. Mark Battison, who, who's written the book that we're studying right now, puts it this way. I think we find ourselves at a cultural moment where our kind of political polarization coupled with some of the racial tension and throw in a COVID pandemic and you get sort of the makings of declining levels of civility and just treating each other in honoring and respectful ways. That's a very kind way to put it. Right? We're feeling that pull. We're feeling that tension. It feels like sometimes the world is spinning backwards and we're being pulled away from the very foundations and roots of the things that we thought we could believe in and trust. The Lilly Foundation is the largest, most respected nonprofit foundation in the world. They commission a lot of studies. In 2022, they commissioned a study which brought us these results, not very surprising. One-third of Americans say they're either clinically depressed or have an anxiety disorder. 71% of Americans are angry, and 66% of Americans are fearful. That's the world we live in right now. We're feeling that stress and that struggle. In the middle of that, Mark Battison in his book, about three words, three simple words that change everything, please, sorry, and thanks, says there, there's something we can do. In the same way that, that words can, can lead us to hateful and horrible places, words can bring restoration. Words can bring healing. Words can help lead us to wholeness. And he talks about those three words, and I thought you might read along with me this morning. Let's, let's read these words and as, as how he explains them together. Please, a timely please can help you unlock the rule of reciprocity for greater results. Discover the power of we is greater than me and honor others above yourself. Please leads us back to respect. It leads us back to connecting with each other on a human basis. Now, I got to be honest, in my house, we've been working on these three words, please, sorry, and thanks. We're doing pretty good with please. We're doing pretty good with thanks. It's that sorry one that's kind of tough, right? So let's read what he says. Let's do this together on the word sorry. Sorry, a sincere sorry can lead you to mend broken relationships, strengthen connections through being radically vulnerable, and better understand the degrees of forgiveness. Sorry, again, connects us on that human level, helps us recognize that none of us is perfect. The apostle wrote, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're, we're all human. We all have weaknesses and frailties, and recognizing that in each other helps us to love and care for one another. The third word he talks about is, is one I love. We'll talk about it next week, but let's read the, the, what he has to say. Thanks. A heartfelt thanks paves the way toward a resilient mindset of gratitude and expectancy to see God move on your behalf. It's, it's about how we shape the world. As a therapist, I can tell you that the metaphors we use shape the way we see the world. When we speak in hateful and hard words, we see the world as hate-filled and hard. When we speak with words of, of kindness and compassion, we see the world and it is a place that has the possibility for kindness and compassion. The way we form those, those ideas and concepts shape every close 
personal relationship we have. And the amazing thing about it is God gives us the choice. We get to choose what words, what images we're going to use for the way we see the world. Mark Vadison puts it this way, like God in whose image you were created, your words create worlds. And I believe that few words resonate with more power than please, sorry, and thanks. They sing in three-part harmony. They are the foundation of all healthy relationships, and they will determine how happy you are, and I might add, how holy you are. Now think about that for a moment. I want to be happy, right? Do you want to be happy? Yeah, you didn't seem too convinced. Do you want to be happy, right? Right? I mean, that's what we want to be. We want to be happy and content, whatever situation we're in, the apostle wrote, right? I don't always think about wanting to be holy, but if you push me a little bit as a Christian, I'll say I do want to be holy. That is, I want to live the life that God has called me to live. Holy means to be set apart for God's purpose. I want to live the life that, that God calls me to live, the, God that God, the life that God created me to, to live, the, the life, the kind of a life that that, that God wanted for me while I'm still in my mother's womb. And God first breathed air into my lungs and called me into life itself. I want to live that life. To do that, I have to connect with the people around me because in our human DNA, our spiritual DNA, we're created to be relational. So Mark Vadison adds this. When those three words become a way of life, let's say it together. When those three words become a way of life, you can not only change the world with your words, you can be part of creating a new world. Now, that's powerful. To know that, that as, you, as you speak, you do. Last week we talked about how God used four little words, let there be light, the English translation, let there be light, four simple words, to cause the cosmos to come into being. And from the time God spoke those four words, universes are being created. Last week we talked about how we, while the time we sit in here in worship, whole galaxies are being born, called to life and reality by the words of God. In the same way, the words we say today create worlds and can determine how holy and happy we're going to be and the young people we confirm are going to be. You know, in, 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 in this world, we do this strange, odd thing in the church. Today in the second service, we'll bring a whole group of young people up here, and you'll see Christians being born. They're, they're going to be coming, and they're, they're the fulfillment of God's dream for their lives, and their parents, and their grandparents, and their families, and friends. And we're going to equip them to go out and face evil, and injustice, and oppression, that's part of the vows, in whatever Form, they present themselves. We're going to ask them to be superheroes, and we're going to equip them with a couple of things. First, to trust in Jesus, and second, we're going to give them words. Words. Ancient words. Words for, that Christians have said in one way or another for centuries now. Words that help them form the way they look at life that help them know how to respond in whatever moral situation they may find themselves in. When they're trying to make the tough decisions in their life, we give them these words. Now, they won't understand them all. 
Neither do the pastors or the bishop or anybody else, right? We just do our best. They get us started. They launch us. But there are promises that form covenants, and covenants forms community. And when we do our best to keep them, we do meet evil, injustice, and oppression, and we defeat it. Sometimes it, it takes time, even generations, to do it. But it happens. When we unite around those words, promises, and covenants that form community, it's powerful. We're going to teach the confirmants to do one other thing. We're going to tell them, if we're honest, that as Christians, we all fail to keep those promises sometimes to God and to one another. And when that happens, there's one more powerful gift that God gives us, and that's the ability to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry can, can, can help us start our spiritual life over, can help us start relationships over, can help us start the world over again and again. Sometimes we're sorry to God. Other times we're saying sorry to the people around us. But it's a way of, of bringing us back to home base, getting us reoriented. I remember when our grandkids were learning to play um, baseball, particularly with my two granddaughters. Sometimes they would get up, line up, they'd be so excited in their uniform, their new shoes, and know that there were snacks afterward. They'd get up, and if they hit the ball, they would run the wrong way around the bases. And it was hard to, to teach them to run the right way around the bases. When we get lost on the base path, Sorry brings us back to home. It gives us a chance to start it over, to get headed back in the right direction. But to do that, the sorry has to be real. I think all of us know what it feels like to hear sorry and know it's not honest. What's even more heartbreaking to me is when I say sorry and don't mean it and know I don't mean it. It takes empathy, connecting with the other person for the sorry to be real. Mark Battison puts it this way, without empathy, our apologies are empty. Saying sorry without feeling sorry sends mixed signals. Are you or aren't you sorry? You have to own the apology. Sometimes my apologies are sort of like some of the library books I checked out in school when I had to write a term paper. I sort of borrowed them for a little while, scanned over them and gave them back, right? I wasn't committed to it. To be really sorry, you have to be committed to it. Because a real sorry has the power to what? Change the world we live in. That's right. A real sorry can change the world we live in. It can take us from a broken place to a healing place. It can take us from conflict and battle to peace and a restored relationship. As Mark Battison says it, nothing mends fences like sorry. Every apology begins with empathy. And say this part with me. It's a heart that breaks for the things that break the heart of God. Now, that is such a powerful sentence to me. That's the, the core of the whole chapter, this whole part of the book. It, it's, it's a heart that breaks for the things that break the heart of God. It's for me to recognize in my life that some action I've taken or some words I've spoken are heartbreaking to God. And to allow my heart to be broken as well. 
and to long for reconciliation and healing. In our spiritual world right now, even in our denomination, we're struggling with with keeping promises. We're going to have to learn as, as Christians and as people who follow Jesus to say those words again. I'm sorry. To say it with empathy and to say it recognizing that there are things we do and words we say that break the heart of God. And we can't just walk away and leave it like that. We're called to take action and reconcile and repent. Now, there's a powerful Hebrew word in the story today I want you to learn. It's pronounced hata. It has a lot of different meanings. Some of your Bibles, when you read the text today, Saul is going to say, I sinned. It could be translated as sin. That is, I, I, I broke covenant with you. But one of the most powerful translations of this word is, say it with me, bear the blame. When Saul apologizes today, that's what he says to David. I bear the blame. He's owning the apology. He's committing himself to it. He's saying, I really did do this. And now I need to take action to make it right. See, sorry when it's, when it's just used and thrown out there, it's not really sorry. In Sue Park's great book, a great Korean Methodist pastor, he said that, that the sorry really doesn't mean anything until we take action to fix what we broke. Let's remember this text together. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of those who say, David seeks to do you harm? This very day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some have urged me to kill you, but I spared you, I said. I will not raise my hand against my Lord, for the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. This is the beginning of today's story. David and Saul are at odds. So Saul is the king of Israel. He's the first king. He's brought these wandering tribes together and somehow formed a nation. He's the George Washington of Israel. And in his court, there's this rising star, a young man named David. And Saul, being a king, worries about about who might try to take his throne away. And people whisper in his ears that the David is out to get him. The David is is seeking to take his throne, which is untrue. And so here the two meet. David's had the chance to kill Saul, but he hasn't. And he reminds Saul that he's there to protect Saul, actually. And he renews his promise to always guard Saul. Today we'll, we'll have these young people come up here and we'll ask them to make promises. Not just to one another, not just to us, their fellow Christians, their Christian home but to God. Because in bringing God into those promises, we give them a kind of superpower that helps us live out those promises when things are at their worst. That's what covenants are for. The covenants they make today, the covenant we make in marriage, the covenant we make in baptism, it's not for the easy days, the good days. We make those covenants for the bad days. It's what calls me back into the room when my wife and I don't want to speak to each other anymore. That never happens anymore, but it used to, right? That's the power of the covenant. It's what calls me back to the church when I'm disappointed in the church. It's what calls me back into relationship with God when I feel like I've gone through a time when I couldn't hear God speaking in my life. 
It holds us together. And here are these two men that, that lead a nation. And it's up to them whether they, they bring that nation together or tear it apart. And David says, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to be by your side. But the conflict continues. And people are whispering in Saul's ear all the time. And finally, it, it just all falls apart. David has an army of hundreds of men. Saul has an army of thousands of men. Saul goes out to seek David and put him to death. And one dark, dreary night, Saul sets up his camp down by the Dead Sea. It's a, it's a sad contrast between the two men. It shows where, where Saul's anger and rage have led him. Because sometimes in life, we forget about compassion and mercy and grace. Then we're led by our anger and our rage. And when we do, where do we always end up? In the wilderness. And Saul is now this pitiful person. He set up his camp next to the Dead Sea, no fresh water. There's only the water he's carrying with him. Each soldier has their water bottle. That's all they have to live on. And in the scene painted in scripture, he's even sleeping in the dirty, filthy road where the animals have gone, literally walked and gone. And there he lies in the middle of the night. David, on the other hand, and his men have been in the beautiful oasis of En Gedi. When we go to Israel and you go see the, the oasis of En Gedi next to the Dead Sea, it's amazing. Beautiful, fresh water everywhere, trees, plants, little animals. They've been living in paradise. It's maybe where David wrote the 23rd Psalm. And now David comes down with his scouts and he finds Saul and he sees Saul sleeping there. They're looking down on Saul in his camp and David's men say to him, hey, let's go kill him. We can put an end to this. After all, we have an army of hundreds. He has an army of thousands. The only way we can win this thing is if we kill Saul. Let's sneak down in his camp. And we'll end his life. And David takes one of his closest friends and they go down and they sneak into the camp and they come to where Saul is sleeping, the king of Israel. Saul is laid down with a spear and his water bottle there, the two most precious things he has out in the wilderness. And David's friend says to him, let me take his own spear and drive it through him and, and we'll put an end to this and we'll win and we'll be victorious and we'll be on top. And David says, no. I made a promise to God and a promise to Saul. And somehow today we're supposed to say to these young people and mean it. When you make that kind of a promise, even if it means your own peril, your own sacrifice, you keep it. So David picks up Saul's spear, the very spear Saul has tried to kill him with and his water bottle, and they leave. And they go up on the hill, and they call down to the camp. And David begins to tease Saul's soldiers. What kind of guards are you? Right? Anybody can just sneak in there and kill the king? Look, look what I've got. And Saul sees it. And he recognizes what's happened. He's recognized that once again, David could kill him, but has not. Earlier in the story, Saul had said to David, you're like a son to me, like my own child. But that language had disappeared in the middle of the conflict. And now in the dark of the night, he wakes up and realizes that once again, David has kept his promise and spared his life. And I want you to think about what's happening here. This is the king. In this culture, in this world, he has absolute power. 
He's almost a deity, even in Israel. He's held up as holy and special and powerful and, and probably thought of as always right. And in this moment, he has a decision to make. He can, he can call his men to go and capture David and his friends and kill them and continue to look kingly and powerful and strong and someone you don't dare speak against. And he can lead his nation by doing that into a bloody revolution. We're seeing that in Africa right now, how that works. But instead, Saul rises to his finest moment. And he says the one thing he has to say to bring these two factions back together, to end the conflict between them, to put his nation and God first, and he says it. Then Saul said, read it with me, I have done wrong. That's kata. Come back, my son David, for I will never harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight today. I have been a fool and have made a great mistake. We say sorry because we live in covenant, covenant with God and others. That's the power of sorry. Because of that moment, because Saul humbles himself, and in front of his soldiers, and David's soldiers says, I'm sorry. Israel is saved from a bloody revolution. It won't be very much longer that the David soldiers and Saul's soldiers will be marching side by side to protect Israel from their dreaded enemies, the Philistines. They'll work together. They'll live together. They'll die together for one nation because Saul said, I'm sorry. And because David kept his promises. Our confirmands are making promises and forming covenants. We have the power to, to teach them that and to be examples for them as that happens in their lives. We also have another power. If we can teach them the power of sorry, then they will truly become followers of Jesus. Long years ago, when I just got out of seminary, I was at a big church here in Oklahoma City. And I was one of the ministers, or quite a few associates. And I was in charge of the sports program, and I loved sports. And I loved playing on the teams. One night, we were, we, were, we were at a gym, and the church basketball team was practicing. No, okay. Not a high school team, not an AAU team, okay? Not a college team. It's not a pro team. It's the church basketball team for the church basketball league. So not real high stakes. And it's just practice. And somewhere in the middle of the practice, I started going for a rebound against another one of the ministers from our staff, and I kind of forgot my faith. <laughs> you know, all those great promises you make in, in baptism and confirmation for pastors when we're ordained, I forgot all those promises. That whole covenant thing just went right out the door as I was trying to get that rebound, and pretty soon we were scuffling all over the floor in front of our lay people. And I remember leaving that gym the, that, that night and thinking, well, my career's over. <laughs> you know, I, I've been out of seminary about six weeks and I think I'm done. <laughs> I went to the, next, to the office the next morning and I walked in the office and I thought, oh God, this cannot get worse. 
but it was. There was a letter there, a note from the guy that I had the scuffle with, the other young pastor on the staff. I thought, well, he's probably telling me he's already called the bishop and I'm done, right? And I opened the envelope, and the first two words were, I'm sorry. It was followed by three more words. Please forgive me. Now, I knew I was wrong. I hadn't even thought about him. And here he was apologizing and asking for reconciliation and healing. The next Wednesday night of basketball practice, he and I sat down before the team, our lay folk that we were supposed to be leading. And I think we really led for the first time when we told them about how we apologized to each other and reconciled. And that minister and I have been friends now for 40 years. In fact, when the bishop gave me a church with a big staff, I, I asked him to come. I said, I need you here by me, man. I need somebody I know I can trust. And he came and served with me 15 years. That's the power of sorry. That's how it can, can bring healing and reconciliation and can lead us to be the people that God is calling us to be. So your action step this week is very simple. I just want to invite you to practice saying I'm sorry. Say it even when it seems silly and ridiculous. Say it over and over again. Honey, I want you to pay attention to this part. Okay. <laughs> now it's for me to learn and for each of us to learn to say I'm sorry. And that way we change the world. We join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.